0: welcome back to women in product marketing you're going to love this chat with christy roach the head of end user marketing at Airtable. we discuss bringing your product launch to life which includes troubleshooting when it doesn't go according to plan the benefit of discovering issues in advance prior to the launch day and how to prep and make sure you're on track for deliverables a must listen episode in my opinion shout out to our sponsor clue that's clue with a k the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business. Clue helps you collect, curate, and distribute competitive insights to enable sales and revenue teams to win more deals. Don't just compete, compete to win with Clue. All right, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan, and I'm here today with Christy Roach, Head of End User Marketing at Airtable. Christy is no stranger to podcasts, and in fact, she has appeared previously on Product Marketing Experts for both a product-led growth topic, as well as positioning. I personally cannot wait to chat with her today. Prior to Airtable, Christy has led PMM at Envoy, Asana, Gusto, and had roles at Intuit as well. Welcome to the show today, Christy. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be here. So happy to have you. And let's start off with our favorite question this season. What is something that you are very proud of? Yeah. As you know, when you asked me this, I was like, God, what am I proud of? I feel like all of us for
1: the last two years have just spent a ton of time staring at ourselves on a Zoom and being like, what am I doing? I think the thing that I am most proud of is really the, I hate this word, but the balance that I seem to have found later on in my career, not that I'm so late in my career, but when I was in my early twenties, I spent so much time thinking that what I did at work, like was the definition of who I was and what my value was. And I compared myself a lot to people who had bigger titles than I did or who were, I found like, you know, if a friend was working long hours, I wanted to work longer hours. I think that the tech industry especially really pushes this kind of concept that like you are the accomplishments that you have. And I think that over, especially over the last few years, I've really started to find pride in VP positions that I didn't take because I knew that was not the right setup for me in my life or times that I like prioritized, you know, not cutting a vacation short with my family because I wanted to spend time with them more than I wanted to like be involved in that one project, even if it seemed interesting. I am a very ambitious person. And so for me, my pride is my ability to rein it in and use it at the right times and have just like a better lens on what really matters to me and what's worth sacrificing for and what's not.
0: Well, I think that's wonderful. <laughs> and I certainly agree. Balance is something that's really hard to attain and something we don't always prioritize. And I'm proud of you too. It's really Thank you. <laughs> it's Some so people neat. will hear that and laugh because they're like,
1: you work so much. But I do feel like I have a lot better idea of what I feel working on and what I feel is worth it. And so I also feel like balance is not logging off every day at 5
0: p.m. It is feeling like you're in control of what you do and don't want to do. Absolutely. i yeah. being purposeful about mm-hmm. how you spend your time and energy. It's so important. Well, I love that. Great way to start. Well, let's talk about your role. I'd love to hear more about your role. I think I told you, I am such a fan of Airtable. <laughs> We've used it at many companies I've worked at and I'd love to hear more about what you specifically do there.
1: Yeah, so Airtable, for those that don't know, is an app platform that lets
0: teams build workflows
1: around their business processes. So, unpacking what that means a little bit is it is a relational database. That is something that usually folks use when they're building software. Databases are not something that people, the common folk, are really exposed to often. People are really used to project management tools, but What we've realized is that, you know, and now we're in over 250,000 organizations, 80% of the Fortune 100 people actually know how to get their work done. We don't need to teach them how to do their work. We need to give them a platform that they can build their workflows on and then continue to make them better over time. So people can really customize what Airtable does to their exact needs. So creating movies or designing running shoes or running a B2B tech marketing team, you know, we had one of the things I'm really proud of with Airtable is There were a lot of people who used it to distribute vaccines during COVID. And so there's just a lot of different ways to use the platform. And my role is the head of end user marketing, which is an interesting title. Whenever I tell anyone that they're like, what does that mean? But Airtable is a tool that is used not by a select few, but we really go wall to wall in companies because it is the tool that powers your workflow. Everyone who works on that workflow is involved. Often in B2B tech, you know, your product marketing team can focus on your buyers or your IT personas or like the very specific type of user, right? The example I always use, I wonder if you'll chuckle at this. If you're Marketo, you know who to kind of go to. It's the the folks who are really close to your email. For us, our end users could be like, you know there's thousands of people at our our customer bases who use the product every single day and so my team is really focused on helping those folks be successful specifically uh, i lead a team of six marketers who are focused on growth and core product marketing we're pricing and packaging we do a lot of our customer enablement work a uh, real close partnership with different education teams et cetera. but how do we help these end users actually succeed and learn the tool. Airtable is incredibly intuitive, but is not necessarily easy. So a big part of my work is around like onboarding and education and activation. And then I also lead our community efforts. So how are we helping people connect more with Airtable as a brand, but also connect with one another? Knowing Airtable is becoming this real niche skill that people have, and they take that with them to different companies and they help build out that company infrastructure. And we really want to help elevate that work. Because we do believe that there is kind of this revolution in how people build and use software. And we want these, you know, non standard like engineers that are often operations people, we want to connect them with one another and, and help them learn and grow. So that is kind of my role as a whole.
0: That's awesome. And I love how you progressed the way you talk about Airtable and some of the use cases. So when you were on the show a few months ago on product marketing experts, you were just going through this positioning exercise. And I remember I I was laughing, listening to it because I think your CEO said, you know, it's for everyone. We can do anything with it, which you can, but obviously as a product marketer, having those use cases and having a little bit more of a, finesse around who could use it and the benefits around it so it sounds like that's really dialed now and the value prop is really clear so kudos to you (laughs) thank you it was not just me it's a
1: work in progress always you know the, the learning we had was rather than saying it's anything to anyone let's just share a bunch of different use cases and let people understand oh that means you can do a lot of things which has seemed to be a little clearer than like what do you want to do? Because you can probably do it near table, which is just truly horrible positioning.
0: Right. Yeah. Show yeah. them the way. Show them yeah. some examples. Yeah. And I understand you just had a launch that you're yeah. so proud of. I want to hear more about it. Yeah.
1: So we actually launched exactly a week ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny. I keep telling people this and then I'm like, wait, why do you all keep talking, asking me about, I set the launch on my birthday, which oh my God. I actually... Would kind of recommend. Do you? I also wouldn't. But here's why: (laughs) because by the end of the workday, unless something goes horribly wrong, the launch is over, and then I got to go out to a birthday dinner and really celebrate because this big stressful thing was like out in the world, and thankfully it went really well. So I was definitely in the mood to celebrate. But you know, having a launch on your birthday is not the worst thing in the world. Pro tip right there. (laughs) It also is like leading up to it, but it's great. So what we launched on. November 9th was our interface designer product. So when I talk about Airtable, what we really are helping people do and the company's mission is democratizing software creation, making it so that anyone can build the tool that's best for them at work. Now people use it for their personal lives as well. The amount of people I've interviewed that are like, Oh, I made an air table for my card collection or like the books I read this year. And that's awesome. We never want to curtail that in any way, but what we really see that the sweet spot is around what people build at work. And there are three layers to software. I promise not to give you the full pitch, but there are three layers of software. There's data, there's logic, and there's interfaces. And we've always had data with our database. In September of 2020, we really amped up our logic layer. We launched automations and a bunch of different platform features but this interfaces launch was the way that not only do we take this, what can be a quite a complex database and put a very welcoming face on it. It's a very simple way to design the interface that your collaborators or the different people you share see to really simplify what they see, make it very visual. It also completes those three layers of software. And so it starts to really feel like a full application. So this was a really important launch for us from a vision perspective and, you know, product momentum perspective, but also it just was like such a big difference in look and feel and experience of how you use the product. And so we were really excited about it because we couldn't wait to see what people would do, you know, with this brand new way to kind of like make and share their Airtable bases. So yeah, it was a very like, there's a lot riding on it. We also launched in beta, which (laughs) It's kind of like getting more and more normal it was also kind of scary to be like, hey, this is also a beta product. But so far, one week in, people have been very, very excited about it. And people have built some really cool stuff already.
0: That's so exciting. Well, happy birthday. It sounds like <laughs> it went you. really well. <laughs> Hopefully you got to drink some champagne and yes. have some celebrations. I just have to ask, did anything not go as planned?
1: Yeah, as always, <laughs> right? What was really lucky is it really went not as planned, like six weeks, five weeks before launch. I feel like often product marketers are really focused on launch day, right? Like when is this going live and what's going on with this? And there's always, of course I was online at 10 PM the night before catching typos on the website or things that I'm like, Oh, this is not quite right. Or that hyperlink isn't where I want it to go. But those things are small. Really the, the bigger risk I see in product launch is like The two to six weeks before launch is really where you have to get serious and say, is this product where we want it to be? Are we getting the customer feedback that tells us that we're ready to launch? Do we have the right team in place? Like, are we on track for some deliverables? We had actually some team attrition that happened during a launch. And I think that can be really painful. I personally had it on my team. It can be really painful, you know, to do all this work and then be like, oh my God, are we going to be able to get this done? There is a grit that I think all product marketers have of just being able to be like sheer force of will, we will figure some of this stuff out. Now, if the product isn't ready, that's one thing, but for us, even with a smaller team, or even with the fact that we couldn't necessarily get done everything that we wanted to get done, we were able to sit down and plan out, like follow up launch activities that we would do for things that maybe couldn't happen on launch day. And instead of being like, oh, it can't happen on launch day, We just made the conscious decision to make it a rolling thunder launch. And so, yes, but usually if you have the right check-ins in place, you can catch those things that aren't going well or aren't going as planned a month in advance. So you can pivot rather than the night before having that absolutely like, oh my God, we totally forgot something moment. And often the the bigger work when things don't go as planned is like internal alignment. So it was like, hey, you know, product team, here's what we're going to do. In terms of our follow up launches, we're not going to include some of these things at launch. They're just either not ready or they don't fit into our story. But here's the kind of thing we can do as a solution instead. And when it's presented like that, it takes all of the, excuse my language, but like, oh shit, feeling out of this. And it's more like, okay, we got a plan. I hear you. I understand why this isn't working. That's a great follow up. So, yes, things definitely didn't go as planned, but there was no like, Fire drill
0: that's great well yeah. I love all the tools you brought from your toolkit that helped you you planned well in advance you yes. had great internal communication yeah. you had hey beta oh now let's do rolling thunder yeah. let's you know incorporate all these things of course there's the launch disaster that you can't anticipate like yes. the website is down or yes your press yes. team sent the wrong press release yeah. that's happened to me too so those things are kind of unavoidable but Yeah, I totally agree. Just having the lockstep with your stakeholders in advance can help you mitigate any major disaster. So glad to hear it went well and you could enjoy your birthday slash launch party. That's totally, Totally. Well, thinking back, so prior to the six week, the red zone, how did you actually go about developing the story and the launch strategy? So I know you love frameworks. So imagining there's some frameworks involved, but I'd love to hear about how it kind of came to life.
1: Yeah. you know, We'll actually take it back all the way to January of 2021. What we really wanted to do on the marketing end is get a real clear picture of the stories we wanted to push into market throughout the year. And so what we did is we sat down and our head of communications and I sat down and kind of wrote up, based on what we see in the roadmap, what are the two big stories we want to put out in market from a product perspective this year. What components do we see? This was a very sausage making experience of like, what are we cobbling together? What do we know from the roadmap? Because what we wanted to do is deliver to our product stakeholders who are really used to at that point, just like releasing as soon as mm-hmm. things were ready. Why would we have a consistent story and narrative? Why would we want to really plan for these launch moments versus release things just like whenever they're ready? Once he and I aligned on that, we sat down with our chief product officer, some of our other product leaders, our CMO, and basically just hashed out like, are these the right moments? What would this timing look like? It got a little fuzzy in there, but it was a very helpful way to, we basically walked out of that being like, okay, we've got our story for spring and we've got an idea of our story for fall. And then as we got... A little bit closer, we then had the product team that was working on the feature. And my pro tip, you know, the big learning I had is I should have done this with them, but they did a really great job. They wrote up what a press release could look like. The product lead on that area, his PMs were the ones that were going to be shipping the product, wrote up like, hey, here's the vision of what this launch will look like. And not only did that give clarity to the product teams of like, how are these going to all come together? Why are we trying to ship? We shipped twelve features on the ninth. It was wild. Like, how do these kind of all come together into cohesive story? But then also to the rest of the org, what we did once that was like kind of done on the product end is started shaping up. Like, what is this launch narrative for us? How does that fit into ongoing category work that we're doing or what we're seeing in a, you know, we're in a very competitive market as I feel everyone is these days. So like, what does that mean in our competitive landscape? What does that mean for our sales first call deck, et cetera? Then as we got closer, so that was, I would say probably like spring, early summer-ish. And then summer really started come like June. I want to say you start with a launch brief and it is two pages My biggest thing about frameworks is if your doc is really long, it's because you're not editing or prioritizing. If your messaging doc is long, if your launch brief is long, it is because you are trying to fit everything in there. And I think a lot of PMMs and just folks in general mistake it for being thorough, but you should have a crisp enough strategy that you can get that brief on two pages, maybe three, if you're trying to list out your deliverables, but it is around like, why are we doing this? What is the goal? Why is this brief here? Is literally a question in the brief that you answer. One of the biggest things I like to do before we even do a messaging framework is what do we want people to think, feel, and do? What do we want this launch to make them think? Either a change in their perspective of the product or the company. What do we want them to feel? Do we want them to feel empowered? Do we want them to feel a sense of urgency? Like, what is the feeling we're trying to invoke? And then, like, what do we want them to do? Is it? expand? Is it sign up? Is it use the product that just kind of helps orient before you go? Like, is this, you know, a top of funnel acquisition or is this a blah, blah, blah. It's like a nicer framing. Cause that, what do we want people to do is a customer question? Is this for current customers or existing customers slash is this to bring in new customers this Is an internal question? So the brief is really there to get us all focused on like, what does this feel like? I love that. Then we go into messaging. Then we go into testing the messaging with our beta customers, but it was really that brief, That helped us then say, when if we have that brief and we all agree on what we're trying to do, why we're doing it and what we're trying to drive, what bill of materials will help us get there rather than just like, here are our standard launch bill of materials, which I feel like candidly, we need to do that too at Airtable. I think we have the tendency to reinvent the wheel at big launches to be like, what should we do? And it's sometimes you just need a menu of like, we usually do these things. But I think the trap sometimes in going straight to like, we usually do these things is you just do your Classics of so you're like, of course we'll do a blog post and a landing page, of course we'll do a video. And it's like, well, let's start with like what we're trying to drive. Maybe a video is the wrong thing. I think people have the tendency to be like, oh, video, big launch means video, or like, you know, some companies like big launch means webinar or customer event or whatever. And it's like, well, why don't you let your brief tell you what you're trying to do? And then you can back into your build materials because then you have a lot more conviction over them and then when you go tell channel owners like why you want to do that thing you're telling them with conviction rather than like well it's a launch so of course we're going to do a webinar <laughs> like yeah. it's just a different kind of point of view.
0: I love this. So you started really high level with hey what's our annual plan you and the comms director yeah. sitting down baking this out then to the sort of press release about each of the individual launches then to the brief which sounds mm-hmm. like a really key part of this and then that helps you create the actual go-to-market strategy. So, so many goodies in there. I am curious what you said about the product team making that shift from just launching things whenever they felt like it to going to this new narrative and having more of a bundled launch approach. Yeah. It sounds like you got the head of product on board, but what were the steps on kind of changing the tide and getting them to see the light that PMM can actually really help. I've been in this situation before, yeah. so I'm very curious to see how you approached it.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I was pretty lucky with timing. So that meeting that we're like, what are our launchers? It was our chief product officer's first week. So he was like, great. I new. what do you guys <laughs> do? We got in pretty early and we had just hired new. We had been a really like engineering led product organization. We hadn't really had product managers. Airtable had wild growth for this very, very small team. That was one of the things I was most surprised by when I came in. I was like, oh, it's just a bunch of engineers being really smart and shipping stuff. Like there's, There was a lot that wasn't there in a way that actually made it really exciting to join. Because I was like, if y'all have this momentum now, think what we could do with like a formal marketing team and some product managers. But even still, one of the big things that was important to me as we went into this meeting is one, This is so small, but like solid pre read. What I wanted them to do is to, we're a very pre read culture at Airtable. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. It's just like death by Google Doc, but it's very helpful because it's all categorized. But I wanted them to internalize what we were trying to do before we came in and talked about it rather than coming in and pitching them on an idea. It was all really laid out of like, why would we do this? And what are the big things we're trying to drive on our end? And like, What could these stories look like? And even if they were the wrong stories, it helped just kind of ground like, why are we doing this? So that the big thing I wanted to avoid is marketing or even worse, Christy wants to hijack how we're shipping our product, right? Or like she has opinions on how we should do things. This wasn't because it's more comfortable for me from a marketing planning perspective to do it this way. It was like, this is the right way to get press, which is very important. And as you know, and probably anyone who works in product marketing knows, not that many publications want to write about B2B product releases or product releases as a whole. It's really hard. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, so if we're going to get a press pickup if we're going to get the splash in the market. What do we need to do to do that? So I think it was a very thoughtful lead up to the meeting, the meeting before the meeting of to my product partner, like, Hey, I think we're going to do this. What are your thoughts on it before I even schedule this meeting? Are you cool with this? Have you already done something like this? Because also if there was already work happening there, what I didn't want to do is come in and say, I know y'all are already thinking about this, but I have a proposal on how we should do it. And he was like, we're figuring out the roadmap. And I was like, cool, this is my opportunity. I'm going to schedule something. Let's get in as y'all think about the roadmap around like how we'll ship it. And then I think it was really taking again, the internal out of it and having it be around like, what splash do we want to make at the market? What do we want the market to see and hear from us? How do we also create, we were in a point of the org of like, we needed to create consistency and more standardization on how we do things. Cause like when you're a startup, it can be wild, wild west of like, should we do this tomorrow? Sure. We we need to get into a more mature cycle, but then also saying we want to tell the right stories, right? Like what we want to take what y'all are building, do a really, really great job telling the right story to the market. And we can't do that well if we don't align up front on what those stories might be and align at the leadership level on what we think those stories are. So then when we've got, you know, different PR people or different product marketers working on something we all as a leadership team are aligned on the stories we want to put out in market and we can guide our teams to do that really really well. So the big takeaway is do the work up front so it's not pitching in the meeting and they have something to react to. But I think it was really important that we went in very like this might be wrong, right? We didn't wait until we had a perfect draft of it. We You're went in like, we have an idea and we mm-hmm. want to do it with you rather than like this is how we think we should be shipping product because Anytime one team tries to tell another team how they should do something that they see as a part of their job, you just ruffle feathers.
0: Totally agree. Yeah. I I think this is so smart, the way you approached it. And something we don't talk about a lot is just the actual tactical lead up. And what you did with the pre-meeting, the meeting before the meeting, I call that kind of the squeaky wheel test. Yes. So. sometimes you know the squeaky wheel, you know exactly who's going to be piping up in that meeting unless they are 100% brief before and totally on your side. So you already know that person, but you didn't know the CPO. So you wanted to kind of feel them out. So I think that was really smart. And the pre-read is so smart. I mean, I think so many times where we think our voiceover is so key and there's going to be this big aha in the meeting where we reveal this whole information, but frankly, at the executive level, they need time to digest and they want to read and kind of think about things beforehand. And that's just sort of a better way to approach it. And the idea flow might be better. And having that in advance is so smart. So thanks for sharing those really practical tidbits that can really help. And kind of relatedly, maybe um, moving to another topic that I know you're passionate about. I know that you've had a lot of experience with scaling mm-hmm. yourself within a startup as it moves yeah. to the different stages and those softer skills kind of like you just outlined right there. Those are things that are really important as a company gets bigger, but I'd love to hear more about some of the skills you think that are necessary at different phases or just why you think about it in this way, which I thought was so refreshing.
1: Yeah. This is something I've thought about a lot. I started my career at a public company. I went from Intuit, which is this massive company, to be the 50th. I think I was maybe 52nd. I know I was in the first 52 because I made it on the deck of cards. They made a deck of cards of their first 52 employees, and I made it oh on my the god. deck. Of cards. <laughs> I was 23, I think, 24 maybe, and I was like 50th person at this company, at Gusto, which at the time was Zen payroll. And it was just a total shock. Oh my god! What? These are both companies. These are, you know, I was so young that I was like, these are both product marketing. And I think a big part of it is figuring out where you like and what you like. And even though turns out the f- size 50 for me, not great. It's too much of a scramble for me. I didn't love it. I learned a ton though. And I'm so glad I did it because if you don't get exposure to different types of companies of different sizes or different focus areas or target customers or industries or whatever. You don't really know what you fit in. And I could have easily just been like, I'm going to stay at Intuit or stay at big companies. And I probably would have really enjoyed it. I have friends that work at the Googles, the LinkedIns that are big. They've built these incredible careers. But what I found is I came really alive at like a smaller company. So one, I just was very lucky that I got broad experience. But two, and I think this has specifically come... It, one is as a company scales. And two is as you look at your career growth. And it's funny, I'm in uh, quarterly career conversations with my entire team. So I'm very much in this mindset right now. I feel people have the, the assumption that career growth happens because you work hard and someone notices that you're working hard and they tap you on the shoulder and they say, it's your time to be promoted. It's your time to lead a team. Like, Kind of meritocracy. <laughs> yes, yes. We, have, we as people who do nothing except for watch our direct reports' outputs, have looked at you and said, "You're ready." It's not how it happened for me. Like no one like blessed me to move forward. Um, and I think one of the biggest things, and I really realized it at Asana when I joined. It was 150 people, and when I left, I think we were nearing a thousand, and maybe we we're a little like. Eight or 900. It was really big in comparison to 150 over three and a half years. What I realized, and I got brought in right as we were starting to focus on monetization, and I was a monetization product marketer. And so I got to watch our business evolve. And I think I was really lucky because I watched our business evolve in terms of our actual revenue. But I also got to watch how much more sophisticated we got, right? The first price change we did and the fifth price change we did were totally different in terms of preparation and like needed to be in the room and what level of sign-off you needed. You know, the first one, there was nine of us in the room and I was in the room with executives, but they were much closer to me because there was way less of us. And then by the last one, it was like pre-presentation planning and like, is your deck buttoned up? And like, how are we making sure that everyone knows what's going into this? And so, you know, all of these different threads to say, I think what you have to do is look around and ask yourself, how is this organization maturing and what is, going to be expected of me? And one of the things I think is often undervalued is can you keep up with the pace of the org without somebody needing to tell you, hey, last launch, you were able to do this with a few planning meetings and a Slack channel. And this launch, what you really needed was like a formal weekly check-in meeting. You know, Can you spot some of that stuff on your own? Or can you at least ask the question of, have we gotten bigger that we need to mature our processes or have things gotten, you know, more sophisticated in how we do things. And I see a lot of people struggle at startups when they're like, we used to be able to do this so much easier. Or I used to have such a bigger purview in my role. I used to focus on all of these things. And I reported to somebody that I'm like three layers beneath now, or I reported directly to the CEO and they don't think that their careers have grown. but actually." What they were doing back then when it was much smaller or much more agile or just different was really shallow, broad work. And now they're being asked to specialize and go deeper and what opportunities does that give me? Or what they were doing before worked because the company was small enough. But like, if they keep executing in that way, they'll actually be seen as people who are not fit to lead or to grow in their career because they're not scaling with the startup. So one is like looking around and like, just take notice of how are the other teams changing? Who is new that's been brought in and what have they been brought in to do? And really being open to that change, not being scared of it. You know, I feel like everyone's read that first round review article of give away your Legos. I think it's less around about giving away your Legos. Like, yes, don't be territorial over your work. Be open to the ways that your career will shift and change. But it's also like, be so excited that they're bringing somebody in to do what you used to have to do as part of your role. Like. I wrote our onboarding emails at Airtable when I started. And I am so excited we're building a lifecycle team. I don't want to keep doing that. I'm not an email marketer. But I think this mindset of like, as things grow, my role will change. And if I can kind of make those jumps, like I can do that too. And my career can grow in maybe what is not like a super linear, clear way, you know, you're not going to have now you're a level three and soon you'll be a level four. And then you have to do X, Y, Z to get to level five and then level six. And here's where you become a manager. Like I think one of the beauties of the tech industry is it's not as formalized, right? Like you can make jumps. So when I was at Asana, my parents are educators. This idea of coaching has always been a really big kind of deal to me People management was just something I wanted to do, whether or not I just was high on the power, who knows, but I just like wanted to do it. It felt like something that really, really mattered to me in my career. And what I was doing at first was saying like, okay, work really hard. And they'll like, look to you as a leader. Well, what I was seeing was, oh yeah, we need to hire more people, but it was never like, oh, it should go under Christie for sure. It was just like, we need more PMMs. Well, I took a look at like, okay, how has my purview grown from monetization to, oh, now I'm doing like a bunch of growth and adoption work. I'm actually not just doing monetization. I'm looking at our overall growth process. I also said, I'm going to say goodbye to sales enablement. And I'm going to put that, you know, work. It's good. We hired somebody else to do enterprise, like product marketing. Maybe he can also really lead up our sales enablement efforts. And I kind of gave away that part of work to be able to say, I want to focus in on growth and adoption. We are going full on PLG. The self-serve business is taking off. I want to dig in. And so I said, do you know what we need? Two other roles. And one of my peers really needed to get out of some of this tactical work that she was really stuck in. There was like this weekly process we had of sharing launch updates across the company. And I knew that she was stuck in doing this. She couldn't give it away to anyone. It was important, but it wasn't like Super high level work. So I wrote up a job rec and said, Do you know what we need? Is we need a more junior product marketer to oversee this work that my counterpart was doing and all of this like growth that's coming in our growth and adoption pillar. I submitted a proposal to it. There was no process for it. I wrote a Google Doc and shared it with my boss and my boss's boss and was like, Hey, I want to do this. Checked with my boss first and just share it with her boss. That would have gone probably pretty. Poorly. <laughs> And I got approval for it. And so I think this is less about like, oh, I'm so great and cracked the the career code and more that you create your opportunities. And so I often talk to people also who are like, my scope has gotten narrower, or I'm not doing as much as I used to do. And it's like, you can make just about any job you're in more impactful, more important, more closely tied to the business outcome. If you just take a look at the org. See what you're focused on, see where there are holes or gaps or areas that need to be optimized that are related to what you're doing and either make a proposal if you need approval for it or just go do it. I think that your career growth is much more in your hands than you think it is if you stop thinking about it as your career growth and you think of it as the company's growth and what you could do to drive more impact to like make that company growth happen I for you. I love
0: this. I want to put five <laughs> gold stars around yeah. this because I think I, I've said this too, yeah. where you know, just gone to my manager and said, I want to be a manager. And then I'm not adding value as to why or how, but when yeah. you stepped into more of a position where you can understand how the business is growing, how you personally can impact that, what your team needs, if you can show them the opportunity then deliver on that. That is gold. So that is such great career advice. Don't just sit there and wait for someone to anoint you. I was kind of like, yes, you shall like now be knighted as a manager. You have yeah. to kind of show the initiative and make your own role. Or I was also going to say to the point of having trouble sometimes growing with the company as they get to you know 150 to 1000 is a huge, huge growth, a yeah. uh, huge change you might find you actually like it more when you're at a smaller company and there's nothing wrong with that. That's okay. Go find the next, you know, series A, series B company and go crush it there and bring that leadership opportunity to those companies. You don't always have to stay with the company as it grows, if it's not for you and you're not liking the direction of it. So I just wanted to put that out there too. Always an option. And I have friends that have said, well, I'm only working at the big tech companies or I'm only working at series A companies or seed stage. I just can't stand it. But I've also kind of taken the pendulum approach depending on the season of my life and what's kind of interesting to me, but I think it's not for everyone. Some people have this niche and some people, but these are really great tactical ways that you can grow those kind of skills Mm -hmm. and advocate for yourself, which I think a lot of people are not doing. Yeah. I
1: think your point around like you, it might just be time to go is really, really true. I remember somebody gave me really good advice. I think this happens at work in general, but bulk of my career has been at these series A through DE is usually when I'm like, "Ah, I'm probably going to go startups. I maybe F maybe a little later than D. It doesn't matter what somebody said to me once that was really, really good is don't leave when you're mad, leave when you're done growing. Like work is going to frustrate you. It's going to make you feel like, you know, you're not getting the opportunities that you want. Sometimes people are going to make decisions that don't prioritize the things you want to prioritize. You're going to look feel looked over sometimes. And like, I think it is so important to advocate for yourself, but it's really, really good learning experience to ride out some of those times that you're just a little pissed because you have to be okay with the fact that it's not always going to go your way. And you may actually learn a lot through that. Either it really just Isn't good. And, and you know what you don't want, or you learned a lot about like, you know what? I really wanted to do X, Y, Z, but I see now why it worked out that we should do this other thing. And when you leave, when you're mad, you don't always either learn. Yes, I was right. And that place didn't value me or didn't care or wasn't aligned with what I wanted to do or Oh, actually my frame of thinking was wrong. And what good career growth to be like, I really thought it needed to be this way. I am much more open to the fact that I'm not always right. (laughs) And so yeah, one, don't leave when you're mad, leave when you're not challenged anymore or when you don't feel like there is anything for you. And two is also that openness, you know? Like you were saying, you have friends who are like, I'm only doing big company, I'm only doing stage. It's great to find your niche. It's also great to just like try something new and be open to it, you know? If there's opportunity to move teams, if there's the opportunity to like, People think that career is also a one-way door. If I make this one move, I'm never going to be able to do anything else. If I take this job or if I make this decision or if I say no to this, I'm never going to be able to come back from it. And right now it's a really, really good time to be a product marketer. There are a lot of opportunities. And so if you make a choice that's not perfect for you one time, it's okay. (laughs) Go fast. (laughs) You'll be able to do it again somewhere else. So that's my... Other pushes, not any of it is life or death, in my point of view. Yeah, sage advice, love it.
0: (laughs) Well, I can't believe it, but it's already time for our rapid fire questions. So, let's get to it. I'd love to know who your strongest mentors in your career have been. If you subscribe to the mentor philosophy, some people don't. I do. I have actually found a lot of people want to find folks who
1: are much more senior than them, or you know. For me, a product marketer that I really, really admire, and I have people that I listen to their podcasts or I subscribe to them on LinkedIn or whatever. My actual best mentors that have made me better are people who work in other disciplines of marketing because it's made me a more empathetic marketer to how my partner teams work. So one of my biggest mentors is also now one of my very best friends. She was our head of campaigns and lifecycle at Asana. She worked there for like six years. She's now a VP overseeing all of marketing. I looked up to her because she, one, she's just polished and brilliant and wonderful. And two, she had a different point of view on marketing than I did. And so I think my mentors are people who have challenged my point of views rather than reinforced them. I've always wanted to see like, what does the CMO think? Or what does the chief product officer think? More than just like, does the person who's one level above me in product marketing think? And then also it's folks who are going through the exact same, who are at the same stage of career as I am. So I have a friend who's a similar seniority, actually in a very different, she's a buyer at Stitch Fix, like very different role, similar seniority, similar challenges in her day-to-day life. It's been a really helpful thing for me to be like, okay, is this something that's specific to my role or is this just part of being at this level of seniority. Or one of my best friends who is now living in Paris and and running a marketing team over there, she and I have kind of been on pace in our career growth. And I've really used her as less as a competition, but more as a sounding board of like, how are you approaching it? Are you approaching it with the same mindset as me? Are you running into the same things as me? Oh, she's thinking about it in a very different way than I am. So I don't know if that's mentorship as much as just like doing your career with people that you think are smart and that you admire and that you would want to spend time around.
0: I love it. Yeah. The peer mentor approach, I totally agree with. It's really great. And you can be very open with those people, develop kind of lifelong friendships with them, share the ins and outs of your different industries. So I totally agree. I think that's a really great way to go. What would you say is the one thing that has been most important in terms of growing your career? We might've talked about it a little bit already, but I'd love to hear. Never
1: taking anything personally. And I do, right? I go home and I've gotten bad feedback and I tell my partner, I feel sad, but everything has a chance to grow. This is a business, you know, at the end of the day, we are all trying to make this company successful. Your competition is outside. It is not inside. And so, yes, there are people who are toxic and hard to work with and all of that. But for the most part, No one's thinking about you as much as you think that they are or nothing that you're hearing that makes you really frustrated is really about you. And the more that I can't have been able to put myself in somebody else's shoes or ask myself, even if I don't agree with the feedback, what learning is there or what is there even to learn about working with that person? It has made me really resilient because none of it is about me. It is about the business outcome or it is about like what that person is going through. And I think It helps you not ever fall into a victim or a woe is me mentality. And it helps you looking forward to like, how can I improve versus what's wrong with me or why am I not getting these opportunities? That is very refreshing. I love it. (laughs) What about networking? Love it. Hate it. Do you do it? I don't do it in the way other people do it in that I don't like do cold outreach on LinkedIn. I don't spend a ton of time in networking groups unless I want to learn, or like, unless I have a question, you know, if I find shared bird very helpful, what I have found is if you meet somebody smart, either a friend's coworker or a, somebody you meet just out in your life, or you read something on LinkedIn that you think is smart or whatever, just like shoot a note, say you liked it. I think that loose connections can be great. They don't have to do this like six month check-in. It's like every six months, let's get coffee or let's check in, you know, it's more just Hey, I like what you're doing. I think that what you're doing is interesting. Or, Hey, I really enjoyed meeting you. I thought your point is great. Like their LinkedIn post when they launch something new or congratulate them if they get promoted. And like those weak connections have gotten me jobs. They have gotten me great ins at stuff. I just think networking is, everyone has a different approach to it. For me, it's very unnatural to do it in a very like. I'm going to go network way. It's just being really open to being like, I want to stay in touch with you. I want to have a connection with you, but you've got to actually, if they reach out to you, you have to respond. I think as we get more senior, you get busy. So you have to respond. You have to spend the time to actually keep that alive. It can be easy to let it fall by the wayside. And it's just remembering if it's somebody you want to keep some level of connection to don't ever ghost them or bail on them, but it's not that much harder than that. So I don't
0: know if that was a great answer, but no, I don't okay. think with me Be Be respectful. Be yeah. Well, don't ghost people. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. All right. Last question for you. Yes. By product marketing. While I don't actually subscribe to
1: personality tests in any personality tests I've ever taken. Any of those team building, the color ones, the Myers-Briggs, I am the most extroverted you can possibly be. I am someone who does not need, I like alone time. It's great. I don't really need it. I like being around people and sharing ideas, I get this buzz when we're all coming up with ideas and we're excited about something. And like, I just want people. I want to connect people. I want to work with people. And so for me, product marketing is the best. You get to talk to customers. You get to talk to your sales people. You get to talk to your product people. You're very rarely alone in you know, a workday. All of our calendars are insane. So one, it's just like, it's my personality really well. And two, I am most satisfied when I figure something out that at the start I was like, oh my God, how are we going to do this? You know, it's hard. And it, it is this really interesting combination of like, what is the strategy? Where are we going? How do I understand this business? And like, what are we writing in the support macros when somebody writes in with a question? And it's this really great balance of setting the pace for the org in a lot of ways, or being part of the team that does. And really tactically executing. You feel like you get to see something through in a way that I don't, Think a lot of other disciplines give you. I love it. Well, I totally
0: agree, yeah. and I also love product marketing. But Christy, yeah. thank you so much for all of of your insights. I know this is your third podcast with the Sharebird fam. Really appreciate it. If you want to check out Christy's other podcasts. We'll link into the show notes. <laughs> we can to talking with all of your podcasts. Yes. But thank yes. you. It's an awesome having you in the show. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Stay in the know about your competitive landscape with Clue. Share real-time insights across your organization with Clue's dynamic battle cards delivered everywhere your sales reps live through integrations with Salesforce, Slack, Highspot, and many more. With Clue, you'll never let your sales team be blindsided by competitors again. Crush your competition with Clue. That wraps another episode of Women in Product Marketing. Be sure to subscribe and share Women in Product Marketing with someone you think will love it. We're back on Tuesday, Jan 4th with Breaking into Product Marketing with Ashley Guerra, the Product Marketing Manager at SecureLink. Happy holidays, everyone.